0: Hi, everyone. Again, my name is Matt Powell. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse, and really, it's just a joy for me to be with you all. I wish I could be with you in person, but unfortunately, this will have to do. And this is sort of awkward. I've actually never preached live on Zoom before, because I don't know whether to look at my screen, which is over here, or look at you, or look at the camera, which is over here. So one is I'm actually looking at you guys. The other one, I'm actually making contact, eye contact with you by, look, by you looking at me. But And so if my eyes are all over the place, um, forgive me. I think what makes it even more awkward is that Typically, most cameras are up here. My camera's down here in the bottom left corner. Uh, go figure, right? So um, hopefully this will turn out okay. Uh, but let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll jump into our time together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your love toward us. Thank you that you are a God who is infinitely gracious toward us, um, even when we sin, even when we doubt. you are infinitely kind toward us, and not just kind to us, you're infinitely patient toward us, Lord. And that is such a hopeful truth for us to know because it means that even in our prayers, Lord, even when we are still learning how to wrestle with you in prayer, Lord, um, Lord, you do not chide us, you do not uh, remove your grace from us, but you patiently sit with us, Lord, as we learn to grow in our relationship with you. And Lord, we trust that one day, um, on the other side of heaven, Lord, Lord, that is when we will truly understand what it means to be with you in, in, in perfect unity. And so, Lord, I thank you for just what you're doing in our lives now. And I pray that this would be a time which you are honored and glorified. So, Lord, we lift this time up to you now for Christ, if you pray. Amen. Um, well, again, just to introduce myself, my again, my, my name is Matt, and I oversee small groups and discipleship here at Lighthouse. And like Francis said, I used to serve in Beacon i actually moved out of Beacon uh, because I was expecting a kid. And so the difference between Francis and myself, like he's much more dedicated than I, I am. And so you guys really have a great shepherd, someone who I consider just a model of not only thoughtfulness and speaking well, uh, but honestly, he, he's probably one of the more gifted preachers, in my opinion, that I've heard just in, in, in general. And I think hopefully you guys can agree with that. I just really enjoyed seeing his preaching. And uh, I think even part of, you know, Francis said earlier that I'm OK with not having a pulpit ministry. Well, part of it is just because, well, I can listen to Francis all day, and it will be totally fine with me. Um, So you guys have a gifted uh, shepherd, and I pray that you guys will continue to love him and care for him as you guys have been. Also continue to encourage him and to really um, look to him as your hero pastor rather than everybody else who is out there. Um, Just a little bit about myself. My my wife's name is Lisa. We are currently in our bedroom right now. And uh, we have a soon-to-be-2-year-old and 10-month-old daughter, Harper. And also, I just turned one-year-old daughter to Lucy. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, actually, but we're actually expecting a third come October. So we'll be expecting a baby boy, so you can be praying for us regarding that. So thank you for your applauses. And so hopefully you guys will eventually be able to meet them. With that being said, I know that you guys have been going through this topical series on Christian living. And tonight, we're going to be addressing the topic of honest prayer. And the question is this, how can I pray honestly? In many ways, working on this was personal for me because uh, it was around my first year of seminary as a, um, as a post-grad that prayer became a significant part of uh, my life. I'm not sure if Seichi or Francis had to take this class, but back in 2009, I took a class on prayer that required me to pray an hour straight every single day. It was one of the hardest classes I ever took because it was hard to pray an hour every day. I wasn't used to maybe praying 20, 15 minutes a day, but an hour every day was kind of a shock to my system. And it was also around this time that I really learned how to pray. Up until then, prayer was just a theological exercise at best and heartless muttering at worst. Uh, In many ways, prayer seemed cold and insincere. There was this tension, I think, that existed whenever I prayed between what I knew about God versus expressing what was really on my heart. I never really felt free to, to speak to God the way I would if I were to speak to a close friend of mine. Uh, To speak my mind, to be honest with my thoughts and how I was really, like, really doing. Thinking that by being too honest, that I was being too selfish or too sinful. It seemed that whenever I prayed to God, I had to somehow qualify each of my words, um, and yet I never do that with those I'm closest to. Maybe I can give you some understanding of what I mean. Um, It was during my first year of seminary that I had just broken up with my college girlfriend, and I'll spare you the details. But after a series of events, I found myself just really hurting during the season of my life. I thought at the time, the best way to deal with the hurt was simply to think more about Jesus' suffering and dying on the cross for my sins, and to remind myself that I deserved absolutely nothing. And in an effort to somehow dull the pain, I would often pray, God, I thank you that that what I'm going through now is still infinitely better than what my sin deserves. Even if I dared to touch on the subject of my personal hurt, I'd often qualify it like this. God, even though I hurt, this hurt pales in comparison to the suffering that so many people go through for your sake, and ultimately what Christ has to endure on the cross. And while those truths, I think, were good scriptural truths, I found that my prayers were often doctrine rehearsal. Worse, that my interactions with God became impersonal. I remind myself all that I learned about God, but never actually being with God Himself and never actually trusting Him. I wonder how many of you could possibly relate. And like I said, I think these truths are good truths. And there's a sense that in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of eternity, a breakup is a drop in the bucket compared to that. And oftentimes when we consider who God is, we might be tempted to consider that our desires, our prayers, Uh, just simply aren't worth his time, for lack of a better word. But there's also a sense in which if we believe that God is who he says he is, that he's sovereign, wise, good, loving, all-knowing, all-present, etc., these seemingly inconsequential events in our lives have more weight than we care to admit. Rather than being means by which we qualify our prayers or keep us from really sharing what is on our hearts, these truths about God should actually free us be more honest, real, and raw in our prayers. Truths about who God is, give us freedom to actually be with God and relate to Him as we are. Helpless people, crushed by the weight of our sins and the suffering in our lives, who need above all else his very self for comfort, and not who we think we should be. And this is where I'm so thankful uh, for Seiji's sermon last week on, me- on meditation, and where I hope to. Begin with. Because when God's truth is understood at a surface level, it can stifle, it can be, it can stifle and enslave. But when molded over and meditated upon, it brings freedom and joy. Tonight, as we consider this topic of prayer, I want us to meditate on Psalm 139. It's a well-known passage of scripture. I think a lot of us are familiar with this psalm. In fact, I'd venture to say that for most of you, you've probably heard Psalm 139 verses 13 through 16 quoted to you before. You know, it's the verse that we all love to use when it comes to sanctity of life, right? For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And overall, this psalm isn't really, it really isn't that hard to understand. In fact, in your notes, I think I'm giving you the breakdown of the psalm itself. It's a psalm that speaks about the character of God and neatly divides into four ideas about him. First, is his omniscience in verses 1 through 6. Second, is his omnipresence, verses 7 through 12. Third, his creatorship in verses 13 through 18. And number four, his holiness in verses nineteen to twenty-four. And while this psalm teaches us so much about who God is, understand that's more than just a theological permit. But as one commentator writes, it uses the theological ideas to form a powerful message for those who trust in the sovereign Lord God. It is applied theology, and so always re- relevant. We see this even in the psalm itself. While the occasion of the psalm is debated. Verses 19 through22 give us some clue behind its composition. The psalmist David has encountered some measure of, of real wrong and real hurt, and though and through it we see uh, his needs, his, his needs, I'm sorry, through it we see his needs, legitimate needs and desires at that. And it's so in this context of hurt and hostility that, David's, that David finds comfort in the person of God, of God. Again, it is more than just theology. it is applied theology. So while Psalm 139 is not necessarily about prayer, I think in many ways it's helpful for us to consider it and to meditate upon the truths of Psalm 139 because it makes prayer not just possible, real and, and hopeful. We will draw all the more closer to God as a result. And So I want us to meditate on the truths of Psalm 139 to get truth that you guys are well aware of and well acquainted with being at Lighthouse. But this is what Psalm 139 says. Let me read the text for us. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I seek, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the uttermost and, and if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, "Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light above me be, be, be night, be, light, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The the night is bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. For you formed my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, but I was being made in secrets, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there would be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This This is God's word. And this brings us to our key idea for tonight, that because God completely and intimately knows and is involved with us, we are free to be completely and intimately honest with him in our prayers. I hope this... I hope this helps you to draw all the more closer to God in your prayers. My hope is that you'll be all the more free to come to before him with refreshing honesty. It's a way of, ref- of refreshing in him as we meditate over these ideas. Like I said, this passage divides into neatly into four ideas. And the first is this, God's knowledge of me means I can speak honestly. God's knowledge of me means I can speak honestly. The psalm begins with these words in Psalm 139, verse 1. To the choir master of Psalm of David, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, when you think of someone who, of someone knowing you, this actually might not be the most comforting thing in the world. In fact, depending on the context, um, this could be creepy, or it could be in- incredibly scary, right? Um, especially as you, as, as, we re- as we read out the psalm, we come across these literary devices in biblical poetry known as mirrorisms which are two contrasting ideas linked together in order to form and to express an entirety. So phrases like from A to Z or black and white and everything in between are all used to speak about uh, the totality of something. In other words, nothing is left untouched. And that's what we see here. In verse 2, we see the, 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 the phrases sit down and rise up. Verse 3, my path and lying ways. Verse 5, behind and before. Verse 7, go and free. Verse 8, heaven, shield. Verse 8, ascend ascend and make my bed. Verse 9, morning and uttermost parts of the sea. Verse 11, darkness and light. Verse 12, night and day. And again, that actually might not be the most comforting thing in the world. In fact, I think for most of you ladies, if a guy went up to you and simply said this, hey, I know everything about you. I, I know where you, where you live. I know what you eat. I know the meal you had yesterday. I know when you, you sleep, what classes you go to. I doubt that that would be a very successful pickup line. If anything, it would probably be an admission to their creepy stalker selves. And for David, the fact that he is known by God like this mm-hmm. is actually pretty off-putting, even frightening. He says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. The idea is that, even that in light of God's overwhelming knowledge of who he is, he even feels trapped or absolutely cornered. And this makes sense. If God knows us to the extent that this text seems to suggest, then it should frighten us because it means that he knows even the sins and thoughts that we are often so ashamed of and try desperately to bury deep. The worst of us that we would often wish whenever we brought into light He knows. And if that were not enough, verse two tells us that he knows more than just what we try to hide. He knows our heart and our very intention. It tells us that he's acquainted with all my ways. Our hearts, which are hidden to others, are laid before God. And he sees every sinful act and thought. Even before we even have that thought, God sees it already. And before this knowledge of God, we have all the reason to be afraid because it means that he has more than enough evidence to condemn us based on what he knows of us and even knows what we don't even know about ourselves. But what makes us full and pervasive knowledge of God, what will make this text a comfort and not a threat later and for us, is this one truth that the God whom David speaks of is a personal one, one whom David does not simply live under the searchlight of but it's brought into relationship with In verse 1, he addresses God with this name, O Lord. Now, why is this so significant? Because in our English Bibles, you have noticed that the word Lord is written in all caps. And what this refers to is more than just God as simply deity, but it refers to God's personal name revealed to his personal people whom he has chosen, loved, and saved. It speaks of his intimate and close relationship with his people. But it speaks also to his protecting presence and active concern for his people. So let that settle for a bit. Just meditate upon that idea. Your God is not just any God. He's a Lord. He knows you by name. and You have access to him by his personal name. Do you realize that this God knows you? He really knows you, he knows your sin and the worst part of you, and he even knows the slightest of thoughts that you have towards sin, even before the idea was ever conceived in your mind. He knows you. And while this is scary, consider that the same God, that this same God also has bought you not with the blood of sacrificial lambs, but the blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. He's redeemed and saved you to be his own, so that God might be more than just deity to you, that he might be your father. And if this is the case, think about what that means. The God who knows everything about you, this God who knows everything about you, who knows the best of you, and he knows the worst of you, and yet, get this, his love for you does not change one bit. And oftentimes when we pray, we speak to God as, as those trying to put our best foot forward. We speak to God hiding the thoughts and intentions and desires that we judge to be too fleshly at best or too sinful at worst. As if by not articulating them, our prayers stand a better chance of reaching God's ears. We do this either by trying to overqualify our words, not bringing them up, thinly hiding or immediately turning anything that we we deem to be too fleshly of a request into a confession. Now, as a caveat, keep in mind that there are times where confession is necessary, as we'll see towards the end of our study. And understand that there is a difference between expecting, even demanding, sinful uh, requests and actually just simply requesting before God. But what I'm simply pointing out right now for our study right now is this. If God already knows the intention of our hearts, whether good or bad, why do we pray? as if he doesn't. You see, the fact that this God knows everything about us shouldn't cause us to be shy about what is on our hearts, nor should it cause us to be hesitant over what burdens us. The very opposite, it encourages and frees us to be candidly honest and candid with what is weighing most on us, knowing that Jesus has died for every wrong request we could make and every right request that we could make. Tim Keller puts it this way, To be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So what burdens you tonight? What is the thing that weighs most? your heart? Here are two questions that might help guide your own prayer time. What is most important to you, even if you don't think it is? Just think about that. What is the most important thing that's on your heart, even if you don't think it's the most important thing in the world? Second, what is the one thing that you want to say more than anything else, even if you're unsure of how good or bad it might be? you Just pause and think about that. What is the one thing that you want to say before before God, that you want to say more than anything else, even if you're unsure of how good or bad it might be. Understand that your father knows it all already, the best and the worst. And so you are encouraged to speak honestly about it. You are encouraged to lay every burden on him because he already took on the infinite burden of your sin. So there's nothing that will surprise him. So start in there. Oh, well, we have to move on, but our second idea is found in verses 7 through 12, and it's this. God's constant presence means I can rest in his compassion. God's constant presence means I can rest in his compassion. Knowing that God knows everything about, about him, David comes to this conclusion. There's nowhere that he could possibly go in which God will not find him. Whether in spiritual realms inaccessible to mortals in verse 8, or the height of the sun rising in the, in the morning to the places in the ocean where sunlight does not reach in verse 9. There's nowhere too deep, no place too dark, where God cannot find David in verses 11 through 12. And it's not simply that God is able to find David. In verse seven, he says specifically, he, said, he says specifically this, "Where shall I go from your spirit?" And it's significant that we note this because in the Bible, God's spirit expresses his immediate divine presence in the world. We see this as early in the Old Testament as Genesis 1, verse 2, that in a formless and void universe, God's presence was present. We see this even in the New Testament, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was still physically present. uh, He was still present with his disciples by way of his spirit. So here David is not just talking about the fact that there's no place that David can hide. He's saying even more specifically that there is no place where God is not already with him. That's why verse seven says this, where shall I go from your spirit? or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, like I said earlier, depending on the context, this could be a scary thing. In fact, as you read through Psalm 139, there actually seems to be this progression in which David, frightful of the fact that God knows everything about him, seeks to flee from God's presence as we see in verse seven and tries to take cover in the darkness in verses 11 through 12. Much like Adam and Eve, who attempts to hide from God among the trees in the garden in Genesis 3.8, everywhere that David goes, God's presence is there. But it's not there to simply meet him. We find that God's presence has always been with David. Verses 9 through 10, we read these words. If I take the wings of of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What's being conveyed in verses 10 is this picture of God who has step by step been leading his people safely through dangers and difficulties and triumphantly to a desire and promised destiny. Upon crossing the Red Sea, Moses sings this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed; You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What is being communicated here? It's this, in every stage of life, even in the worst of circumstances, God has never, God has been there. He has never forsaken us. So do you realize that wherever you are at in life, God himself is there. That he is not detached from your struggle. He's not detached, whether in sin or in suffering, that his presence abides that he does not remove himself away from us. That if he is with our struggles, if he's with us in our struggles and sin, then his presence means at least two things for us. Number one, his presence means he is sympathetic to us. He's absolutely sympathetic to us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever struggles you're going through, or even temptations that you're wrestling with, Jesus willingly listens. And he understands. Think about why that might matter. Because it frees us to, to speak to him with anything that is on our hearts without fear that he'll somehow turn our words against us, no matter how they no matter what those words are. See, like, like a sobbing child who runs to their parents. Although our tears might not make any sense, though our tears might be the most trivial thing in the world, we can come to God and rest in the comfort of his presence and sympathy. So pray to him. Speak to him. Speak about what is weighing on your heart the most. You'll find that he will not use our words against us and he will not chide us. In fact, you'll find the very opposite to be true. As you, open yourself up, honestly, open, as you open yourself honestly to Jesus, friend of sinners, you will find what is often said to be true of him. that to open one's heart to one's friend. It doubles our joys and cuts our grief in half. That's not to say that our hurt will go away. But there's something comforting, I think, about sharing our hurts with someone who truly loves us that helps to soothe and lift the pain, even if just for a bit. It reminds us that although we hurt, we never hurt alone. So pray to God, rest in his compassion and sympathy towards you and speak with honesty. His presence also means this. Number two, his presence means he is patient with us. He's absolutely patient with us. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this familiar chorus about God. That the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If God is willing to remain with us in spite of our sin, it is because he is abounding in steadfast love, because he's slow to anger. He is patient. God is patient and long-suffering with us because growth in Christ-likeness and in suffering is meant to be taken one step at a time. There are no shortcuts. praise God for that. Praise God that he does not demand that we change immediately. Praise God that he's abundantly patient toward me. This matters because it means that we can pray and express the things that are on our heart and rest in God's compassionate patience toward us, even if what we pray for is less than perfect. In doing so, we are not saying that we're content with where we are, but but what we are saying is this. We are resting in and entrusting ourselves, imperfections, sin, and all, into God's timing and will for our lives. Author Paul Miller puts it this way. In bringing your real self to Jesus, you give him the opportunity to work on the real you, and you will slowly change. The kingdom will come. You'll end up less selfish. The kingdom comes when Jesus becomes king of your life. But It has to be your life. You can't create a kingdom that doesn't exist where where you try to be better than you really are. So what does this look like practically? Well, I think for myself, I found it helpful in my own prayers to remind me of this truth by simply saying these words at the very end. I know I'm not where I need to be. So God, help me. Going back to my opening illustration, I remember certain pains I remember certain times that the pain was more acute than other days. But I think the pain was most difficult when I found out that she and a friend of mine got together only three weeks after we b- broke up. As much as I tried to pray the pain away, that pain only turned into intense anger. Anger at God, anger at those two. At which point I was so overwhelmed that all I could do was pray, God, I hate that I have to be the one who gets stuck with the short end of the stick. I hate that I have to be the one who has to be Christ-like in love toward them while hurting And Honestly, God, I hate them. I don't want want the best for them. So God, help me. I know I'm not where where I am. I know I'm not where I need to be. So God, help me. Simple as I was, God was so patient. It was in his patience that God began to expose the idolatry and depth of my sin. Was I quickly convicted and changed? Honestly, no, but God was patient. And the fact that he was with me freed me to open my heart to him in honesty, with the hope that he would change whatever needed to be changed, even if I didn't know what that was. I drew all the more closer to God because in his patience, he bears my burdens. He bears my complaints. As the friend that he is, he bore all of that with an open ear and with a patient spirit. So Beacon, what burdens you this evening? You have a God who promises to always be with you through the good and the bad. You can therefore rest in his presence and speak with honesty to him who has a compassionate ear toward you. So speak. Speak what's on your heart. Speak what weighs on you the most. Cry out to him because he deeply cares for your burdens. Knowing then that this is the kind of God that we have, this brings us to our next idea. Number three, God's thoughtful wisdom means I can request freely. Knowing that God knows everything about David and knowing that God has always been with David and will be with David, he comes to this stunning truth. God has God, God was with him even in his creation. In verses 13 to 15, we read that God created every single part of David from the physical to the spiritual. But more than just create David as if he was just another product off the assembly line, David here emphasizes God's intentional and thoughtful creation of him when he was nothing but an idea. We see this in verses 17 through 18 when David speaks about the preciousness of his thoughts in creating him. God, in other words, poured his infinite wisdom into considering every part of us, but not just to our body or soul, but to our very lives. Notice in verse 16, it reads this for us. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for for me, when as yet there was none of them. We consider that. Just, Just meditate upon that idea. God wisely and sovereignly planned more than just the development of our bodies. But every day afterwards, from the day that we would take our first step, to, to the exact moment in which we see our need for Jesus, to today we would have our first crush, down to the exact moment and time that we die, from the monumental to the mundane, every single step of our lives, every minute, every detail, every second, was wisely crafted and superintended by the wisdom of our God. Do so you know what this means? It means that there are no accidents or slip-ups. His wisdom... As Wayne Grudem defines it, means that he not only chooses the best ends, but he chooses the best means for those ends. Every single second of your life is the best means for that end. he wisely crafted our lives in such a way that in a million possible universes, this very circumstance that you find yourself is in the exact place that God wants you to be. Or you would have chosen something different. Why does this matter? Because it means that nothing we go through is considered too trivial for God. None of our circumstances and none of the things that burden us are considered too small for God. Yet we often treat them like they are, don't we? We treat certain prayer requests too trivial, or prayer requests as too small or it's simply not worth God's time. But how can they be? How can they be if The very circumstances we find ourselves in and are praying in and praying in them for were the product of God's thoughtful, infinite wisdom towards us. You see, if we understand that the burdens that we carry were ordained by God before we were even formed, that his infinite wisdom was poured into the exact thing, weighing your heart down at this very exact moment and not a moment too soon, then we would be all the more encouraged to ask really. There is no request too minor, too small, or too minute. God has sovereignly and wisely placed you in that position to pray about that very thing that we consider too small and too minute. So what are the things that weigh heaviest on your heart? What are the things, the needs that you're too afraid to ask God for? You are encouraged to ask God, Really, because in his wise providence over your life, no request is too small. So ask and request freely. Now, having said that, we need to be careful. Like I said earlier, that there is a difference between expecting and demanding versus requesting. One puts our desires above God's, and the other humbly recognizes our prayers for what they are. Simply requests that are held at God's mercy. But beloved, this is not a bad thing. In fact, requesting gives us hope. Remember, God is wise. He knows exactly what we need, even if it's not what we think we need. And he will always answer according to what is better and best. I think Romans 8.26 helps us to navigate that tension. But Romans 8.26 tells us this, likewise, the Spirit with us, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with a groanings too deep for words. Did you get that? What is Romans 8.26 saying? It's saying that even when suffering and sin and everything about this world has so frustrated our prayer lives that what we pray for is not what Jesus would pray for if he were in our shoes. The Spirit graciously intercedes on our behalf and and with requests, not what we want, but what we need. Not what we know, not what we think is good in our eyes, but what God knows is better in His eyes. This is why requesting actually gives us hope. I can come before God and freely request what is on my heart, not because I'm expecting God to bend His will to my desires, but because I know that God will give me a far better answer than I could ever dream of, hope for, pray for. When we recognize prayer in that light, requests and not demands, that God will answer according to what he wisely determines is better. That encourages me to, to, and it gives hope for me to ask freely. So what is on your heart tonight? What are the requests that you so badly want to come to God for or are just too afraid to ask? God invites you to ask freely. God's wisdom gives you freedom to ask without qualification because in wisdom, in God's wisdom, he gives a far better answer than we could ever dream for, hope for, and pray for. This brings us to our final point. Number four, God's perfect holiness means I can seek righteousness. Now, as we come to this next section in verses 19 through 24, in many ways, this really kind of seems out of place. Besides possibly giving us the context for the Psalm, why else would these words in verses 19 to 24 be here? But when we consider these verses in 19 through 24 in light of the entirety of the Psalm itself, it makes sense why this would be here. Because you cannot experience closeness of God in knowledge, presence, or wisdom without experiencing the closeness of God in holiness. His characteristics are not divorced from one another because we, we, because, we don't, because we don't experience simply God's characteristics, but we experience God himself as a whole. Again, as we saw earlier, to be known by God was a frightening prospect. But this is also significant for us because it speaks to this reality that God's holiness means we can seek righteousness in our prayers in both the external and the internal. How so? Two ways according to this text. Number one, we can name wrongs rightly, the external. We can name wrongs lo- rightly. In verses 19 through 22, uh, take a look at me in your Bibles there. We come across, across what is known as imprecatory words, words which are written really to invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies, especially enemies of God. And at first glance, as you as read through this, this might seem ungracious and cruel. In fact, Throughout the Psalms, you'll find these imprecatory songs. I mean, is it right for us to sit, to ask God to slay the wicked, like in verse nineteen? Is it okay for me to actually say, "I hate those who hate you, O Lord," and loathe them, as in verse twenty one? Is it okay for us to say that we hate them with complete hatred, according to verse twenty two? Especially in the New Testament, Jesus commands us to love our enemies, in Matthew six forty four. Is it okay for us to actually pray these prayers? But well, we need to understand that throughout the Psalms, when we come across these impregnatory words, the psalmists are more interested in their are never interested in their own personal vindication or revenge. But rather they're more concerned with God's kingdom and anyone or anything that seeks to wage war against it. In other words, what the words of, of imprecation throughout the Psalms teach us is that when we seek to love God and adopt his kingdom as our own, it necessarily means that we hate anything which is antithetical to it. Just as it is right for me to hate anything or anyone which seeks to harm my wife or my children, it is, it is right for us to hate sin, death, and the subsequent wrongs and suffering which seek to diminish God's kingdom. So what does this mean for our prayers? It means this, that in our prayers, we can name wrongs rightly. Granted, we ought to be careful with what we determine is wrong. Wrong is ultimately defined in relationship to God's kingdom and not our own. But with that qualifier, we can name the wrongs in our life and freely bring it before God and ask God to act accordingly. Think about why that matters. And for us who are suffering, do you realize that it is okay even right for you to pray against the suffering and evil that press against you? Whether that suffering is a result of the fall, or that suffering is a result of another person's sin against you. I think the tendency of our hearts is to believe that we pray against the suffering or the hurts caused by sin in our lives or somehow being selfish or too fleshly. And while it is true that we can and should trust God in the midst of suffering, trusting God doesn't only have to mean live, learning to live faithfully with the suffering. it also means along with that entrusting god to right the wrongs in our lives because he cares so deeply about that i mean history is moving toward a time when when that is going to happen anyways it's a reality that jesus uh, inaugurated when he came to heal the sick and cast out demons to right the wrongs of sin as a believer then it is right and good for us to name what is wrong to pray for god's deliverance from those things and so ask yourself this can you name the wrongs in your, in your life? And again, not wrongs according to your view, but wrongs that are in relation to God's kingdom. They're suffering in your life, whether the result of someone's sin against you, whether the result of the disease or a virus like COVID-19. God invites us to bring those words before him and to speak honestly about them. And beloved, we need not to see that as a bad thing, but a right thing. We we, we pray for these against, we pray against these things in other people's lives. Why is it so bad? We pray against it in our own. And going back to my original illustration, I remember feeling the hurt so intensely that it dawned on me that the hurt I felt as a result of relational separation is not the way things are supposed to be. Before, I would often pray that God would simply just remove my hurts, not realizing that the hurt I felt is a hurt that I can and should pray against. Now, to be absolutely clear, it wasn't that I saw their actions against me as wrong. They did no sin, at least from my perspective. But it was seeing the hurt itself, relational pain as a product of the fall, that was wrong. That freed me to be able to name that and speak it to God with honesty. In doing so, God wasn't just a distant figure. He was someone whom I knew is near and cares about my pain and suffering because they are pain and suffering that ultimately war against him. your prayers, can you name what is wrong? Can you do it honestly? When we do, we are reminded of God's closeness in it all because it's not just the pain and suffering that's against you, but it's pain and suffering that's against God. So you are free to pour out your heart in tears as you name the wrongs and the suffering in your life. But like I said, seeking righteousness doesn't just mean naming the external wrongs. It is also naming the internal one. The second idea is this, that we can confess humbly the internal. As David closes this psalm, he turns the spotlight inward and he says this in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Again, this is an off-putting idea. Um, I think We all understand this because we live in an age where we tend to value our privacy, don't we? Passwords protect our accounts. VPNs protect us from other investigation of our internet usage. Incognito mode conceals our browsing history. Even from a relational standpoint, very few of us are willing to say to others, search me and know my heart. So why does David say this? He only says this because he rests in this one fact, that God already knows him. Go back to verse 1, you'll see that David ends this psalm with the same words he opens with. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. And because God has searched and known David, David is able to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. And as he rests in God's intimate knowledge of him, despite the best and worst of him, he is free to be honest about himself. He's free to say to God, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just consider that. I think for a lot of us, when we think of confession, it can be such a daunting task, right? feels like we're admitting guilt before a judge who would judge us on the basis of that. And if God were that, then we would have every reason to be afraid. We would have every reason to keep our sins hidden Moreover, when we do confess, I think we often tend to do so with a sense of qualification. We'll try to explain the situation a bit more in hopes that by giving more context, it might make our sin appear lighter than what it really is, or at least more understandable. I know I do that when I speak about my sin, especially to other people. But I hope what is abundantly clear is that the God that we confess to is a God who cares for us, who is intimate with us and who loves us intimately. And what that means is simple. I can confess, not any need to qualify my sin. As God reveals my sin, I can confess and name my wrongs plainly because there's nothing I could say that takes God aback. There's not one sin that I can confess before God where God will say, I did not see that coming. He's like a loving father who says to their son, no matter what happens, if you're ever in trouble or in a bind, I want you to know that you can always come to me. Isn't that what the gospel is? That because of Jesus dying on the cross for us, there's never a time in our lives where our darkest sins, whatever jeopardize our standing before him. What better way for us to rehearse the reality of that than to humbly confess, to ask God to reveal the sins in our hearts and to bring that before him. You are invited to humbly confess, not as a defendant turning in evidence before a judge, but as a child who is invited to turn to your parent whenever you're in trouble and are reassured that God does not think or deal with you any less than before. Do you want to draw closer to God, you want to be all the more reminded of God's fatherly love and care for you. You want to be reassured of this truth more and more, that death no longer has the last word but Jesus did. And learn to confess. Learn to confess honestly without any qualification. Obviously, there's so much more that can be said about prayer. But what I wanted to do was to give you a, a, a picture of honest prayer as you meditate upon these truths that you have heard over and over before. I think oftentimes what makes prayer with God so difficult at times is just our simple lack of honesty. But I hope that you're all the more encouraged to draw closer to God by way of honest prayer. I hope you're free to know that you can draw near God by way of honest prayer. The kind of honest prayer modeled for us in the Psalms, and the kind of prayer modeled for us by Jesus himself. And there's the hope. Here's the hope. The more that we submit ourselves to God and his will in everything, our helplessness, our lack of godliness, our willingness, our sinfulness, even our most short-circuited or desires and prayers, it is then that Christ will begin to conform our hearts into his image. For myself personally, the more I learned to pray this way, the more God began to change my own heart. As I think back to my original illustration when I began to pray in this way, that God slowly began to do his good work in my life. And he slowly began to expose my sins and idols. But more than that, he began to grow my love for this couple. It took time, but eventually I wrote to them. And so let me land the plane with this, not to be a humble brag, but to conclude with my uh, but to conclude my story, or to conclude my story, but by way of testimony to the brokenness in my life and my personal sinfulness, and to His absolute goodness, on October third, two thousand ten, a year after they got together, and when I begrudgingly gave my blessing, I wrote this to them. Hello, you two. How are you both doing? I wanted to take some time to email the both of you and just share a bit what's been what uh, share a bit of what's been on my heart. So please forgive me if the email seems out of the ordinary or even scared you. Or if my words are jumbled, oftentimes sunray makes me think a little bit strange. I want to humbly ask you both for your forgiveness because I suspect that I left you two both in the dark in terms of our friendship. I want you both to know that I'm so thankful for our friendship and fellowship that is in Christ Jesus. I know ever since last year, things may have seemed a bit uncomfortable. And I can imagine that for the both of you, even along with me, it may have been awkward to converse with me out of uncertainty. And that was the case for either of you. If I've ever caused you to stumble in any way or whatever way, please forgive me. That was never my intention. In fact, me writing this has helped affirm that within my own conscience and heart. But I wanted to let you both know that I love you both very much. I cannot begin to express my thankfulness to our savior that he saved all three of us and called us into light and fellowship with the father. And so with that said, I want to serve you both the best I can. I told you, I, I told both of you before, but you two have my support in every way possible for, and let's call her Susan. Susan, because of the privilege to be able to serve with her, especially as the Lord used her to sanctify many sisters and for, let's call this guy Carl because of the privilege you've extended for me to speak at your church on multiple occasions, even affirming the desire for ministry and for being a brother who strives along with me in the pursuit of the ministry. And more than that, I do just want to be your friend and brother in Christ. I want to put this very clearly on the table that I hold nothing against you both, even though I have in the past. I have instead the utmost support for you both, rejoicing with you when you rejoice and weeping with you when you weep. I would understand if you both would just prefer otherwise, but I wanted to let you both know that I just want to be there for you guys as a fellow brother and hopefully clear up any haziness that may exist between us. If you two are ever around the area, do come by and say hello. I can surely use a break from Hebrew and Greek. Back to work. And I share that story, again, not because of any good on my part. It was because by taking time to pray, sharing with what was on my heart and being honest with God, it was then that God confronted me with my idols. It was when God confronted me with my idols and sin that he began to transform my heart to love him more and to love them more. So Beacon, what is on your heart tonight? My prayer is as you meditate upon these trees would come before God with refreshing honesty, that you would pray to him, the things that you hate to bring up, that you would pray to him, that you would let him have his way with your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness and your love toward us. And Lord, even just as we meditate and think of the truths of Psalm 139, a Psalm that we are so, so familiar with, Lord, Lord, we thank you that these truths aren't just truths, that these truths affect how we live, and in particular, they affect our prayer lives. And so Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to be all the more honest before you, to, you to draw all the more near to, to you in prayer, and to share with you what is on our hearts, knowing that when we submit even the worst part of ourselves to you, Lord, it is then that you begin to do good work in us. And so God, would you help us to see that, and would you help us to believe and know that Christ has already died on the cross for our sins. There is no more sin, Lord, that overtakes you, that changes that fact. There's no sin that takes you by surprise. There's no sin that Christ has not died for. So Lord, may we rest in that truth and that reality. For Christ, we pray. Amen.